Jesus, he loves us. That is the simple truth this morning, that he is for us, that he rescued us uh, in our worst places, that the God of the universe came and had mercy upon us and drew us to himself. So with that note, we give you praise this morning and pray, Lord Jesus, that right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would anoint the hearers of the word of God this morning, that you would anoint the teaching time with your Holy Spirit, that it would be you who speaks to us and that we would have ears to hear what that Spirit would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You seated. Good morning. Once again, we'll find ourselves in Acts chapter 7. And um, I may be saying that for about five or six more weeks, but it's okay. So we'll begin uh, and kind of get us, we'll get up to speed here in a minute. We'll get sort of uh, a background again, the same background I gave last week, but kind of give us an idea. So this morning we are going to read, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 7 um, through uh, verse 16. So I'll begin. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great afflictions, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of, had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So. Here we find ourselves uh, in Acts chapter 7, and one of the things that, that dawned on me this week is, as I prepared uh, this message uh, is this, that as sojourners in the land, we talked about this last week and probably the week before as well, and as those who are being pushed out by God, we are in a land that is not ours. We are living in a world that is contrary to this faith that we live in, that we, um, we're in a foreign land, in a foreign place. And how is it that we could think at all possible that living in a foreign land, we would not find ourselves afflicted? That, that, we could, that everything would be peaches and cream and all would be easy for us? It just stands to reason that if we are foreigners in a foreign land, that affliction is upon us, that it is around us everywhere we go. And the awesome truth of this scripture this morning and the awesome truth of who God is for us is that in the midst of that affliction, in the midst of trouble, God is with us. And I thought about this and I, I titled today's message, but God is with us in affliction, but God is with us. And I, and I thought about this even further, and I went, you know, but who is this God that is with us? Because it begs that question. If I understand that God is with us, I must have a good understanding of who it is that this God is that is with us. And we're going to see in the scriptures today that 
it gets us that our understanding of who God, this God is that is with us comes often through the greatest afflictions. It's when we are afflicted, it's when we are troubled that we understand the very nature of who God is. That it is God's revelation of himself to his glory and ultimately, like we talked about, for our flourishing, it ends up that way. That it is for our flourishing. We are in affliction for his glory and for our flourishing. And then we and we get this great understanding of just who God is in times of trouble. So I'm going to give you kind of the outline of the whole chapter seven because it's big. There's just a lot of stuff in there. And as we're going to keep coming back to it, I think we've got to keep that sort of framework in mind to help us understand. So if we looked at, at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7, God's glory is expanded through Abraham as God moves him out of the familiarity of his surroundings and his family. Verses 6 through 8, God gave Israel no land to possess that they might find their dwelling place in God alone. God put his mark on Abraham and his descendants that they might glorify God in the world. So he marked them out, set them apart, that they might glorify God in the world as they sojourn, as they travel in a foreign land. 9 through 50 is a history of affliction. It, it shows Israel's history of affliction marked by blessing and marked by a direct intervention from God. God's intervention came through Abraham as he was marked out. Moses' intervention came by the law that was given and it was designed to bring about their flourishing and, and an ever-expanding glory of God. And they rejected that for other gods, for selfish comfort or selfish gain. They rejected God's glory and his truth, which is the very thing that in this chapter they are accusing Stephen of. It's where we started. So as we look at the whole of this thing, I got to thinking, you know, you could look at just chapter 7, but really it's like chapter 6, 8 through 8, 3 is this whole drama. And it's the drama of the courtroom. And if you ask Heather, I love um, shows, TV shows that are built on that drama. A courtroom especially, legal stuff. I love those shows because they're aimed at getting to the truth, that, that they're presenting a case on each side, and they're aimed at trying to find out what is the real truth. There's this truth as this person said it, and there's a truth as this person said it, but the truth is somewhere in the middle. And that as a juror, as you say, there, I always put myself in their shoes. I'm sitting here, I'm listening to this, and I'm listening to that, and I'm like, where's the truth? The truth is not as it's presented necessarily by the prosecutor. The truth is not necessarily as it's presented by the, uh, the defending attorney, right? It's somewhere in there, though. The truth is, is balanced in there. Well, in this case, Stephen is his own defense attorney. And in Stephen's own defense, he brings the full truth, all of it, to bear he brings the full truth of the history of Israel and why they were uh, in the predicament that they were in um, as a rebuttal to their accusation. And so when I was looking at this text, I, I saw that that the, the elders and the scribes, they do an opening and closing argument in just a few verses. They, they just state what their argument is and they conclude that that's the end of the matter. But Stephen, much sharper, and also anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit, who's just been in the presence of God, as he's in the presence of God, 
he unfolds the fullness of who God is for them, Israel. And then by implication, as we look at that, it, the fullness of who God is for us. So I want to read just a little bit of, of 6, and, and I want to read the end of 7, because um, here is in chapter 6, verse uh, 12 through 14, this is the opening and closing argument of the scribes. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So there's their argument. Stephen's rebuttal. But I, I want to see that I, I don't want to go with Stephen's opening argument to start with. I want to go with where he closes. Because if we go with where he closes, we can see the breadth of what's in the middle. Uh, of, of why he begins where he begins and how he unfolds it. So when we look at the end, let's look at, um, at chapter 7, beginning in verse 51. Here's his closing argument. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You, who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's his closing argument. Very compelling, right? It's a very compelling closing argument. He makes a very pointed um, accusation. One of them, of which I was really super convicted on and thinking about my study in the Word of God, is that I have been delivered the Word of God. I have access to this all the time. I have access all day long. I have it on my phone. I have it on my computer. I have it on a tablet. I have uh, multiple actual physical copies of it in my home, in here in the office, and I read it. And the thing is that sometimes I don't obey it. And he gives this simple accusation here to them, is that this was all delivered to you. You who received the law as delivered by angels, a gift from God, and yet you didn't keep it. And this very law that you didn't keep, you now want to impose upon others. You want to impose a thing that you could not keep. You couldn't keep it yourself, but you want, yet you want to take all of that and, and impose it on other folks. And I, I keep thinking about the things that, that I walk in and the, and the sins and the mistakes that I make. And I know that when I look at them and I view those sins upon other people, I want to apply the Word of God to them. You need the Word of God, right? And yet, there's a place in me where I go, but have you applied that Word yourself? Have you applied that to you? Have you applied that word to yourself? Did you read that and understand it? I know that you, you say that you do and you can't quote it, but do you live it? So before you start talking about that with other folks, let's hear the word and really hear it, which means do it. Do what it says. And so I think that that is incredibly important as to the text that we're going to look at today. Because when he begins his opening argument, he goes not to the law. See, their accusation was that Jesus was going to turn uh, 
the, the law of Moses and traditions all up on their ear that he was going to circumvent the law and circumvent the temple and circumvent all the things that they were used to. And it would, it would seem to me that the logical argument is that you pick apart what it is that the, the accusation is. So you start with where they accuse you and then you sort of debunk that. Stephen goes further back, further back, to show who God is through one man's obedience. Through Joseph's obedience, he shows the nature and the character of this God that is with us by showing time and time again how whatever circumstances, whatever afflictions might have come the way of Joseph, whatever afflictions came, but God was with him. So, today, as we look at this, I'm gonna, um, we're going to go and look at a few key passages through the actual account in Genesis, because it will give us a clearer picture. He's given us kind of an overview of all of Joseph's life um, in seven verses. And um, the Genesis account goes from chapter 37 to 50. So I think there's a little bit more detail in there that we kind of need to glean so that we get exactly what it is that um, he's going after. So if you would look with me in Genesis, um, say, 39, I think. So as we look at, at Genesis 39, uh, a couple of things that I want us to keep in mind as we start to study this out together is that in Stephen's opening argument, as we saw it in, in Acts 7, is there's an understanding that, that Stephen wanted the elders to have. The elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, those who were making these acts. He wanted them to understand that one, and same thing, we should understand that God will not share his glory with anyone. Remember, we looked at Isaiah 48 last week. And, number two, that God has been and will be present wherever his people are. God will be with them. Wherever his people are, God is with them. And that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That is that John Piper puts it that way, and I, I really love the way he puts it, that God is most glorified in you and me when we are most satisfied in who God is. When we are pleased with who it is that God is, then God is most glorified in our satisfaction of him. It's when he becomes our all in all, when he becomes all that we need and all that we possess, then God is most glorified in us because we are satisfied with the greatness of who God is for us. Well, I think about that, and I think that the other thing, too, is that in this opening argument, remember that it's pre-law, it's pre-Moses, but it begins in affliction. His argument begins in Joseph's affliction. So I thought about a couple of things about Joseph that maybe we could think about. Has he ever wondered why Joseph's brothers were so upset with him? Because really, he, you know, he had gotten a dream that they were going to bow down to him, that he was going to be highly exalted, right? And, and, and they got mad at him. They didn't like it. And he presented this to his father. His father didn't like it either. Uh, his father didn't like that. Well, what was it about that that, that they, didn't, they didn't like? Well, I think it's this. I think it's partly this. Is that what Joseph proclaimed about the dream 
he, he didn't say anything about where the dream, who the dream came from. That it was a it was a God-given thing. It was about all of a sudden I am better than you. He was it was a little glorification of himself. I think that that there was just this underlying tone that he was saying God has marked me out and He hasn't marked you out. That God has set me above you, right? So there was sort of this feeling maybe that 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 they thought that, you know, gosh, she was just kind of glory-hogging it, that, that this Joseph was just kind of hanging on to this stuff. And so it would kind of make a man. I can understand that. Well, so we see at the beginning of 7 that that because of that, because of, of Joseph proclaiming the dreams and the things that God had put on his heart, and, and those were all good things, right? Those are all good things. Another thing that, that dawned on me is that, that they gloried the, the Israelites, the ones who are making these accusations against Stephen, they gloried a lot in the law, and they gloried a lot in Moses. Well, weren't the law and wasn't Moses just a gift that God gave to them? It was just a gift. And instead of glorifying the giver, they glorified the gift. Joseph was given a gift of this dream that prophesied and told of his future. And he glorified in that gift more so than the giver of the gift. And so, as I think about that, so they, they these brothers, they get, they get upset with him and they throw him into a pit. And the scripture doesn't tell us when Joseph sort of came to an understanding of who God was. But I gotta think it probably happened in the pit. I gotta think that these guys, these brothers grab him and they throw him in the pit. Now he's got some time to think about what he's done and what he's said. He's got some time to get some perspective, some godly perspective on this dream that he's had. And said, nah, you know, it's not about me. You know, it's about, it's about God. It, it was always about him. It was about what he was giving to me. It was a gift to me to be shared with everyone to their Benefit to the benefit of all of my people to their human flourishing. That this gift was not given to me and me alone for my own personal flourishing, for my own personal glorification. That this gift that was given to me by God was meant for all of my people. He kind of maybe came to that understanding in the pit. Because I know that in my life that when I come to an understanding of who God is, it's usually when I'm in the pit. It's usually when I've really been hammered hard. When I've come face to face with my own sinfulness, then I go, hmm, that's, that's, that's not what that's about. I, I'm on the wrong track. I've been on the wrong track. That it's not about me. That it's all about him. So, the brothers, they sell him into, into slavery. And I want to look at 39 verse 2. As he now has been sold, he's in Potiphar's house. And in 39 verse 2, it says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. See, so here's a sign, right? Here's another affliction. He's taken, his first affliction is to be thrown in the pit, right? And I think there he meets God. I think he really meets God in the pit. And he's drug out. And now he's, he's brought to Potiphar. And then there's this understanding that he's getting that the Lord was with Joseph. And that, the, and that this God that was with him, that had, had um, brought him through this affliction, 
was now showing him favor in the affliction, that this God was with him. And then, so the next step is that Potiphar's wife, she <laughs> entices him, right? And she tries to draw him. Now you see, you can see that, that something changes in Joseph. Something has changed. Look at 39, verse 9. He's in the house and he's talking about um, Potiphar to Potiphar's wife. He says, He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see, that something had changed in Joseph. Something had said to him that whatever it is that I am to live for and to be about in my affliction, in my oppression, in slavery, that it is to be about the glorification of God, how is it then that I could sin against him, he says. So something had changed in him. Again, the scripture doesn't say it, but I think it happened in the pit. <laughs> it, that, that's a guess for me, that, that happened in the pit. Well, now you see that then Joseph, because of her accusation, another false accusation, by the way, um, false accusation uh, before, then he gets a, a false accusation here, and he's put into prison. Let's look at, nine, at 39, uh, verses 21 through 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So this is who God is. I think Joseph is coming to a very good understanding of who God is. But oftentimes it takes us, doesn't it, affliction, to understand the very nature of who it is that God is for us. So, further, Pharaoh comes and he asks Joseph to interpret some dreams, right? And you know the story of him, him telling him, you know, what these dreams mean and all of that. Well, look at 41 with me. Um, and verse 16, when he, this proposal is made by Pharaoh for him to interpret dreams, we can see the heart of Joseph here um, really clearly in verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He asks for this interpretation of dreams and then Joseph says, it's not in me. God will give you the answer. God will give you the favorable answer. It's not in me. It's in God. Because of Joseph's obedience, because of Joseph's dedication to the glory of God in the midst of afflictions, there are many things that could have pulled him away and enticed him away. You realize that as he was in prison, that with the prison guard paying no attention to him, he had freedom. He could come and go. But he understood that God had him here. This is where God has me. I could walk away from this, probably. But I understand that God has me here. I don't know what his purposes are, except that I am to glorify him and obey him in this. 
So he stayed there. But he, I'm sure that he could have come and gone. As this guy said, he didn't pay any attention to anything that he did. He was just there in prison. But he had freedom. And he, he could have exercised license, right? And done what he wants. But he didn't. He had, he had every reason to. Same thing, he could have taken this woman who was offered to him. It was free to him. He, he, you know, he could have. But he had an overarching thought and idea is he understood the nature of the God that was with him. And he said, no way would I, would I betray that God. No way could I sin against my God. So I see in chapter 7 that Joseph's life, it demonstrates God's purpose in affliction. If we look at chapter 7, and we see just right in, really, in the beginning of verse 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, verse 10, and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Who is this God that is with Joseph? I think that right there in that description, we understand who God is. We understand who Joseph understood this God to be for him. That number one, God was a rescuer in affliction. That's who God is. If I'm in affliction, the only way for me to be rescued out of it is for God to be the rescuer and rescue me. That number two, that he was a comforter in times of affliction. That's who God is. One who brings us comfort. Number three, the source of wisdom. He gave him wisdom and favor. That God is the source of wisdom. He would understand that. That number four, he would understand that God is a provider. That God provides a way. That God made provision for him. And not only him. And not only for his own personal flourishing. But ultimately, that God gave him favor and was a provider for all of his family. Even his family who was not yet in Egypt with him. He brought him there to be the provider for his whole family. So he would see God then as a provider. He would see God as a covenant keeper. That God made a promise. And that God fulfills covenants. We fail them. We don't honor our commitments, but God always honors his. God is always faithful. You would see that. In the Genesis account, we would see God is the source of steadfast love. God is the source of mercy. God is the source of long-suffering. God is the source of kindness. So it's in this nature of God that we see redemption in affliction, that that all that we are, all that we are afflicted in in the world, it all is overcome by this fact, this truth, that we become these overcomers because Jesus says in John sixteen thirty three, in this world there will be trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That is, if we trust, listen, and obey, then who else becomes an overcomer? You and me. Because Christ is the overcomer. When we are in the midst of trouble and, 
and we need um, rescuing. It's again understanding the nature of God. That when we need to overcome, Christ is the overcomer. When we need rescuing because we're trapped, God is the rescuer. When uh, times are just tough and we're broken hearted and we need comfort, God is the comforter and God is with us. And think about, I think about the, the Great Commission too, is that at the end of the Great Commission, there's, there's this great statement that Jesus says, Lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Right? He tells us to go out, expand the glory of God. Everywhere we go, that this glory of God is to be expanded and that he's given us a mission. He's given us a purpose, which is to make disciples, to teach them all that Jesus commanded. Teach them, teaching them all of those things, teaching them all of his ways. And then he says, as a sort of a last little reminder, I think a thing that we always forget is, lo, I am with you to the end of the age. And I think that has to be a comfort for us knowing that in this world there will be trouble. I am with you in the midst of that trouble. So we need a good understanding, I think, of who this God is that is with us. I think that theology matters in that, right? That our understanding of who God is, of his nature, of his character, of his attributes, is very, very important for us in the middle of affliction, in the middle of trials and troubles. And here you are sitting here today, and maybe you're saying, I'm in the middle of some real deep stuff. Or you may be saying, I'm not. Everything's going very well. Hang on. Because it'll come. Because I think the promises of God are true. That in this world there will be trouble. And there will be. Because you are a foreigner in a foreign land. You, this is not your home. And so how could you be comfortable in a place that is not your own home? This is not where you belong. You are children of the King of God. Your dwelling place is in Him. So how could you be comfortable in that? So I'm thinking about what Paul said. We can flip there too, uh, into uh, 2 Corinthians 12. I want to look at that for a second. 2 Corinthians 12. What Jesus says to Paul. Let's look at, let's start at verse 8. And this is about a thorn in his side. He's got, he's got this affliction. He's got uh, this thing pressing on him. So in 2 Corinthians 12. Beginning verse 8, and he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response is, Therefore I will boast all more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Yeah, he's strong. What is he strong in? He's strong in the knowledge of the nature and character of who God is for him. That's what he's saying, is that in the middle of afflictions, I come to a great understanding of the nature and character of who this God is that says he will be with me to the end of the age. That's what Paul understands. Again, as I'm thinking about this, is, are, are you in the middle of affliction today? Um, this week was, was a tough week. I, there, I had lots of uh, phone calls from people in the church and 
people around that are really going through some seriously tough stuff. They're in the middle of afflictions. So my question became, are you walking in hope during these trials? Are you walking in hope? Who do you know God to be? Are you enslaved? Are you trapped? Who do you know God to be? Do you know God to be a rescuer? Do you know God to be a comforter? Do you know when you're perplexed and you don't have an answer, do you know that God is the source of wisdom? When you are um, down on your luck and finances have dried up and you just can't seem to figure out how you're going to pay for everything that you have, do you understand that God is a provider? When you feel like you've lost your faith, when you just feel like, I just don't know how I can put my faith and my trust in God, I just don't see an apparent end. Do you know that He is the one who is always faithful? Is that the hope that we walk in? That's the truth and the hope that we ought to walk in. You know, in Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus says this, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. That in the middle of our afflictions, in the middle of times in which we might be in bondage to something, we can be in bondage to our own sins, we can be in bondage to many, many things. But Jesus says this, I came to give my life as a ransom for your bondage. Is that the God that we know to be in the middle of our afflictions? Do we understand the very nature and character of who God is for us? I want to look at one last section in Romans chapter 5 because I think this sums it up for us. This tells us the truth about the things that we go through, about the things that God is doing in us through them, that, that God proves himself to be God, in the middle of troubles, that's when he proves himself most to us. It's when I see him the most clear. I, I know that. It's I know in my own self that I see God most clear when I'm in the middle of a deep, deep trouble. Maybe one that is caused by my own personal sinfulness. Maybe one caused by circumstances around me. But when those things happen, it's when I, it's when I see the faithfulness, the character, and the nature of who God is. You know why? I think it's because I have, in those moments, and I'm at the end of myself, and I can't trust me anymore. And then I look around, maybe I ask for friends to help me in the middle of that trouble, and then I realize I can't trust them to help me. They don't have it in them. Because <laughs> they don't, because they are not God. And God is saying, I'm not going to share my glory with anyone. And also, do you know that I am all you need? That I am everything you need. You can find the answers in me. That you can... Find out that as you're dwelling in a place in a land that is not your own, that you find your dwelling place in God, that you find your dwelling place in Him, and in Him you're home. In Him you actually finally feel like you are at home. I know that in those times of trouble, and God has met me in those places, I then feel at home. My circumstances haven't changed. Not a bit. But I understand the nature of God then. And I'm at home with Him. Let's look at Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. Since then, 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. One thing to note about that faith is that we have been justified by the faithfulness of God that brings us peace. It's because God was faithful to send us the Lord Jesus Christ. It was God's faithfulness to us that has justified us and brought us back into a peaceful relationship with our God. Through him, verse 2, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see, the same thing that Joseph hoped in the glory of God. He could be obedient to who God was because he knew that by his obedience that God would be ever more glorified, that the, the glory of God would ever be expanded, you see. And he had that, that same understanding, I believe, that John Piper talked about, is that we who are, we are most glorified and we are most satisfied in him, right? We find our satisfaction in him. And then guess what? We can rejoice in hope in the middle of tough circumstances. We can rejoice in hope because God will be glorified. That God will be glorified through this. God will be magnified through this. And that ultimately it will lead to our human flourishing. And we may not see human flourishing in this life and on this planet, right? We understand that. We understand that. That we may not see that. But we do know and trust in the faithfulness of God that he who began a good work in us is faithful to see it to its completion. Right? That, that God who saved us did not save us to an unknown end. That he saved us to be in the dwelling place of God forever, ultimately. Right? So, uh, verse 3. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now listen to this, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. It's in our weakness, in our helplessness. That's really what that word weak is. It's our helplessness. When we are helpless, we see the glory of God. We start to see an understanding of the character and the nature of who God is when we are helpless. Then we come to understand that at the right time, at the right time, you always notice that God is right on time, right? I, I do. I notice that when I'm at my most broken, it's the right time. And, and, and God comes in and he becomes the rescuer, the provider, the merciful God. Um, the one who shows his steadfast love forever, the one who shows his faithfulness in the middle of those things, right? And he says, verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him. From the wrath of God. For if we were, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Because our dwelling place is in Christ. We are saved by the life of Christ. And we walk in that life of Christ. We walk in that truth of him. All the time, that all the while, maybe being hammered by affliction, maybe being hammered by oppression. But in those times, I say, that we have to get on our knees, bow down before God, and say, God, who are you? Who do I know you to be? Show me who you are. And he shows us all of those things. That he's faithful, that he's merciful, that he's kind, right? That he's long-suffering and patient. That he is the one who is the provider. He is the one who is faithful when we are faithless. He is the one who keeps covenants and promises when we don't. That's who God is. And I think that that's why in this text this morning that Stephen starts off with Joseph to say, an obedient man of God in the middle of affliction who understands who it is this God is that, that, that he's serving. This is the God that you rejected. This is the God that you rejected. And all he asked of you, my friends, that's what he would tell these guys, all he asked of you was this, trust him and obey him. That's all he asks. It's a simple thing. Trust God. Obey God. It's a hard thing to do. It's a simple thing to understand. Right? It's a simple thing to understand that God is who God says he is. Do I trust that or do I not? That, that, was, his, that was his answer to them. That's his opening argument is trust in God. God is with you. God is with you in the midst of all the trouble. God will be with you. And trust in the giver of all the gifts of God and not the gift itself. Right? Trust in the giver and not the gift. The gifts are great. The giver's greater. That's the understanding, right? The giver is greater. Let's pray. Lord Father, I thank you again for your word and I thank you for this morning. I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you have given us ears to hear what you would speak, that you have closed our minds and our hearts to those things that might not have been of you this morning. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be those who have heard your word this morning and become those who do it. We give you praise again in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take just a couple, a few seconds, and absorb what it is. Think about what God stirred in your heart this morning from hearing his word. Do business with him right where we sit. I think it's important for us to say, here's what I heard from the word of God this morning. Now God, Holy Spirit, do your work. Well, I thank you, God, for your great grace and your great mercy. I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for all that you have drawn here. I pray again that you would be with us this week. You would strengthen us and empower us. That you would help us to um, be those who are drawn to um, a desire to be in your word. Because that's where you meet us. In relationship with us. That you would draw us in to be those who seek in your face daily and hearing uh, the words of Christ. That our faith might be built up. So we give you praise again in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.